You're listening to the Revelation Podcast brought to you by Open Bible Baptist Church. We're so glad you've chosen to listen today. To learn more about Open Bible or to hear more messages, visit openbible.ca. In today's episode, Dr. Neil Sawatsky talks about the nation of Israel. Why does Satan hate Israel so much and how will they overcome? To answer these questions, here is Dr. Neil Sawatsky. What do we mean by replacement theology? What we mean by that is that the church has taken Israel's place and Israel is finished. That's what replacement theology means. And uh, I quoted here on page number three of this little booklet and uh, said that a cursory reading of history reveals that St. Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate by order of the Pope, describes the Jews as, and listen to this, serpents wearing the image of Judas, their psalms and prayers are the braying of donkeys. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa in uh, 394 AD, or that's when he died, so sometime before that, said this, the Jews are a brood of vipers, haters of goodness. And there are a few quotes from different individuals in here, so when the Latin Vulgate was written, it was one of the earliest, and of course it was written into the Latin, and the uh, Catholic Church used that for a very, very long time and did their services in Latin. They, at that time, were already saying that the Jews are essentially written off entirely. Martin Luther, who was the translator of the German Bible and a theologian, a teacher and a preacher in his own ranks, had tremendous notoriety in history, and it started the massive Lutheran movement, not by design, but just it followed him, and so it's not any small thing. But Martin Luther saw the venom and the hatred towards the Jews, and so he took pity on them, and he thought that perhaps by ministering to them that he would be able to to convert the Jews and get them to come into his fold of ministry and maybe make people like the Lutherans out of them. And, of course, the Jews resisted that. The Jews will not do that. There will be individual people that will convert, but the Jews as a whole will not convert to a standard system of beliefs, and they just won't do it. They won't even won't do it in the end, by the way. When Martin Luther realized that he could not persuade them to come his way, he wrote a 65,000-word diatribe against the Jews, and he made such statements as, don't let them have any business, uh, don't rent them facilities, let them just starve to death, they, they're not worthy. And this was a man who translated the Lutheran Bible, which is standard for all of the German world. It's unfortunate, but many of the people, even many of the people who translated the Bible were so anti-Jew that I'm amazed they even gave the history of the Jews in the scriptures. But they were more or less tied to it because they were translating what was before them and God had given the words and so they were, they were obligated to do it. Just recently I heard of, uh, there's a young couple working in Kitchener, they're, they're primarily working with Muslim people, so they're very sensitive towards the people who are from the Muslim part of the world, very of the Palestinians especially, and of the other Muslim part of the world. And, and just recently I heard that the lady of that couple flew over to Palestine to demonstrate against Israel, 
because she believes that Israel is the aggressor and Israel is all wrong and that the Palestinians are the people of God. This is a person who comes from an evangelical ministry. Now, that's only one person. That's not, uh, you know, I don't know how many do that, but that's one person who is ministry type of person who clearly let it be known that she believed that the Israelis are the aggressors and they're wrong and that uh, God's people are being offended by them. You have this sentiment. Now, if you look at almost almost 2,000 years of history, not totally 2,000, because the apostles did not say anything about Israel being finished as a nation. They never even hinted at that. But beginning shortly after the apostles, you have immediately after the apostles, you have something called the apostolic fathers. You have the church fathers, like Clement and Ignatius and some of these. But they came after the apostolic fathers. The apostolic fathers were men who were trained by the apostles themselves, so they were the immediate successors to the apostles, and they uh, began to write things that they understood to be anti Jewish. And then, of course, the other church fathers pursued with that. And so you've had an anti-Jewish sentiment. When Augustine wrote his City of God and his other massive amounts of theological books, this was the groundwork for the Roman Catholic system. And they tapped into what this man said. He was the Bishop of Hippo and so he, was, of course, was considered a bishop in his own rank. But in his writings, he was anti-Jewish throughout. He wasn't the worst of the writers about Jewish, but he was anti-Jewish. Then following that, you've got the other reformers that come eventually. They come on the scene. The Reformation movement was essentially a movement that had its basis in the Augustinian writing and started to revolutionize things from an evangelical perspective. You've had the Reformation movement, and within that Reformation movement, you had the constant reference to Israel is finished, there is no prophecy to end with. And so throughout these Reformation days, you will read very little about prophecy. You read very little about the book of the Revelation. And so what's happening today is a lot of students and scholars will say, well, we look at the Reformation days and we look at the days of Augustine and look at the days of the church fathers and they didn't see the prophetic word. They didn't see the significance of Israel. So why should we? My answer to that is, yes, they did not see the significance of Israel. They did not see the significance of prophecy. Why should we? Because 33% of the Bible is about prophecy. And there's a very large percentage in the Bible that talks about the Jew, that talks about the promises of God for the Jew. And so the Bible was given to us through Jewish writers, for sure, but we've got this massive movement, and we've got this massive time chart that shows to us that there has been an anti-Jewish sentiment all the way through history. And the question tonight that I put before you is, why? Why? And I think Revelation 12 answers it for us. Now remember that John was the exiled apostle. He was the one that was on the Isle of Patmos, lived to be very old. He was uh, probably 95 years of age or thereabouts. We don't know exactly. In 95 thereabouts AD, he 
uh, finished up writing the book of the Revelation, so he was not a young man, so his age is not exactly known, but, but he was not a young man when he wrote this. And he gives insight because God gave him the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. When churches say, I don't do revelation, when Christians say, I don't do revelation, they're sinning against God. I, I take that very, very seriously. I don't, I don't believe that we have an option to overlook the revelation because uh, this, as any other scripture, was God's revelation to man. The difference here is Genesis was God's revelation to man with things that had happened the things in Revelation are things that will happen. So there's a huge difference here. But Revelation, the revealed truth of God, is the same, whether it's past or future. So we have this in, in Revelation chapter 12. We have this, uh, this, magnificent, this magnificent portion of Scripture that I want to talk to you about tonight. So we have verses 1 through 17. And I want you to be aware that there are four women in the book of the Revelation. So when we open chapter 12, we meet a woman. But there are four women in the book of the Revelation. I just want to tell you who they are. They, they are actually significant women. The first one, as we see the identity of the woman, uh, we, the first one that we see, and let's see if we can move on here, uh, is this person called Jezebel. Those of you who know the story of Jezebel from the Old Testament know that things didn't end very well for her. She was a woman who hated the prophets. She was a woman that hated Israel. She was a woman that hated God's truth and would have destroyed Israel. She would have been a part of the destruction of it if she would have been able to manipulate her husband to that degree. But you will recall also the story of Jehu, how he came and uh, he, uh, he said to this woman Jezebel that she was going to be finished and done with and that the dogs would eat her body. Well, the truth is that when Jezebel fell out of the window and uh, when she came to an untimely death, that there were dogs who were eating her. Jezebel met a very untimely and a very difficult death. Now, in the book of the Revelation, God had said through John to one of the churches, he said, I have somewhat against you because you have there this prophetess Jezebel. Now we know that Jezebel of old did not resurrect and come back. We know that's not the case. But so the church that he is referring to that had the prophetess Jezebel had someone who had the sentiment of Jezebel, someone who fit the picture someone who would have been anti-Israel, anti-God's people, someone who would have led, pe led people into absolute and total ecumenicity without consideration for the things of God. And God said, I have this very much against you in having this woman Jezebel in your assembly. See that in the three churches, uh, uh, the, uh, the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The second woman that we run across in the book of the Revelation is the one that we have before us in chapter 12, and we'll get to that in a moment or so. But what we have here is rather an interesting concept by some artists, and that is that we have the woman. She's very pregnant. Uh, actually, that's a bad term. 
you're either pregnant or you're not. Okay, uh, she was pregnant, but there was a dragon waiting to destroy what she would bring forth. That's the woman that we have before us tonight. Then we have a third woman presented to us, and that's this one in Revelation chapter 17, and it goes on into chapter 18. But it's in chapter 17 where we have the woman that rides the beast. Uh, you'll be very interested in that subject when we come to that eventually. But it's an amazing unfolding of things that make so much sense if you study the scripture and it all falls together for you. And here we have this woman drunk with the blood of the saints. That's really quite significant. She also is the one that is in partnership with the kings of the earth and causes them to commit fornication. So you've got all kinds of moral issues. You've got economic issues. You've got political issues. You've got uh, many things that revolve around the woman of Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And uh, I'm going to, when that time comes, and I'm doing a lot of study in advance, a lot of work ahead of time and so on, but what I will do is show to you the demise of this woman and show to you what's wrong with this woman and how we can possibly identify this woman. She is the mystery Babylon. And because the Bible says she's a mystery Babylon, it's not that easy to unravel. And then we have the fourth woman in the book of the Revelation. And uh, I heard someone say, and I don't recall now who it was, but I heard someone say that I have been a husband and I've been a father I've been a son, but I have never been a bride. And I don't recall who said that, but whoever said that caught my attention. And uh, tonight I want you to know that there is a bride that will be taken one day, and that bride will become the wife to the Lord Jesus Christ. That bride is us. That's the church. The church is always considered in the feminine sense, so the church is the bride of Christ. And so we got these four women. Two of them, by the way, are wicked to the extreme. You have the Jezebel. You have the woman that rides the scarlet beast. Then you've got two that are righteous. You have the Revelation 12, 1, and then you have the bride. And so when somebody says the church does not appear in Revelation, we've never said that. What we've said is, the church is in chapters 2 through 3. Then it's absent from chapter 4 through chapter 19. And then in chapter 19, the church appears. But no longer to function on the earth. The church now appears to be the bride and the wife of Christ. So that's the great moment of finish for what the church is all about. Uh, so even the, even the idea of the church being married to Christ should already tell us that there's a huge distinction between the church and Israel. Remember this, that Israel will enter into the millennial kingdom as a raised, regenerated, born-again group of people, so they will enter into the kingdom of God, and they will be a part of the temple service in the temple in the kingdom of God, and they will be serving God in that millennial temple and we will reign together with Christ. So there is this distinction that the church will reign over Israel, 
and the church will reign over the uh, the whole millennial kingdom together with the groomsman Jesus Christ, the King of Glory. So, so that's where you have the four women in the book of the Revelation. So next time you read Revelation, look for the four women and gives you a little sense of what's going on in this magnificent book. I want you to know that in identifying this woman, Revelation chapter 12, we read in verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Uh, she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. What I want you to understand is this woman in Revelation chapter 12 is not the church. Okay, just, just get rid of that idea altogether because it is not the church. You see, just want you to think a little bit of reason and logic with me here tonight. If this was the church, then the church is pregnant. Then the church births the child that is seen in Revelation 12. And so we could say, like the Catholics do, that the church birthed the Bible and the church gave everything to the world. That's not so. Uh, the church didn't come till Jesus said in Matthew 16 that I will build my church on this declaration that Peter gave. The church didn't begin until the day of Pentecost. And that's when the church began to function as God's witness on the earth, he always has left himself a witness in the earth, and the church would be the witness to Christ to take the gospel to the ends of the world. We have, we have a mandate. Now, if this woman is the church, then we have a problem. Then we would have to say that the church birthed Jesus Christ. Where could you ever come up with that idea? How could you ever justify that? You couldn't justify it from Scripture. You couldn't justify it in any way because... Christ first, the church later, not the church birthing Christ. So this woman is not the church. That's basically what we're saying here. The woman in Revelation 12 is Israel. I want you to compare with me Genesis chapter 37, two dreams that took place in the life of a very young man. Revelation chapter, I mean Genesis chapter 37 and verse number 7 we have Joseph's first dream, and he liked to tell his brothers his dreams. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood around about and made obeisance to my sheaf. Well, you know the story, and you know that the brothers weren't very happy. Uh, how Joseph presented this, we don't know. Whether he had his chest sticking out and with his fancy coat saying, hey, you guys are going to bow to me one day. I don't know if he did that or not, or if he just presented in a humble way. We, we're not given the attitude. All we're given is the reaction. That's all we're given is that he says that your sheaves are going to obey my sheaves. They're going to bow down. They're going to worship uh, my sheaves. And the brothers didn't like it very much. But Joseph had a second dream. And likewise, in verse 9, And he dreamed yet another, and he told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. 
So the brothers now take exception and they tell the father and the mother that this is what Joseph is talking about. He's saying that one day you and the whole family are going to bow down to him. The Bible interestingly says that Joseph's father kept this in his heart. Just like when Mary heard the announcement about the birth of Jesus, she kept it in her heart. Now I'm sure that it was a little bit of a stab at the whole family that one day you'll bow to me and one day you're going to uh, beg things of me. But the fact is it was prophetic. Joseph uh, would rise to the top and he would become the provider for the family and he would become the one that would essentially save the world from starvation because of the genius mind that God had given to him. But enough of Joseph. But what we have here is, I think we can understand that Joseph's family is the beginning of the nation of Israel. Okay, that's the beginning of it. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, and you have Jacob. That is the beginning of the nation of Israel. We also have to realize that to that nation of Israel, God had made his unconditional promises, and those promises cannot be broken. If it's unconditional, it cannot be broken. If it's unconditional, it means there's nothing, anything can be done to break the promise. For the people who say, ah, but when you read in the Old Testament, you find out how wicked Israel became, how fornicating they became, how adulterous they became, how unfaithful they became, and so on. Never one time did God say that I'm going to break my promise if you do this. No, he didn't ever say that. He didn't ever present that to his people. He made an unconditional promise that he would be true to his nation Israel. He knew they wouldn't be true to him, but he was going to be true to them. That's what the book of Hosea is all about, by the way. You see this situation where you have a, a woman who is anything but true blue, but Hosea was blue, uh, true, and he was to be honest and upright and loving. Unconditional love that was presented there. So it's a picture of, and a real situation, but it was a picture of God's relationship to uh, the, to the uh, nation of Israel. We have the interesting incarnation miracle in history. We have in Revelation chapter 12, verse 2 and 5. If you're in Revelation 12 with me, just look at verse 2 first of all. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. So down through the centuries of the old economy, when Israel was designated as God's witness on the earth, and he chose them unconditionally to be his unique priesthood, his unique kingdom of priests. He chose them for that purpose, but they travailed. They had horrible history. They had terrible times. Um, battling, fighting, oppression. This is the history of Israel. Captivity, the history of Israel. Captivity, the history of the Jews. That's the Old Testament picture. It doesn't look like there was a really good relationship with Israel at any time, uh, except under the rule of David and Solomon. Solomon perhaps the best for the time being, that there was prosperity and growth and development and taking a property and territory. But the fact is that that was all short-lived, and from there on they just were in agony and in pain and in a hated, hated nation. But they travailed in pain. They, 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 they travailed in pain to be delivered. 
What were they hoping for? Every Jewish family hoped that their virgin daughter would one day bear a son. That was something that they looked forward to. Can you imagine when this little girl called Mary up in Nazareth received the announcement that she was going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit and that she was going to have a child and you're going to call his name Jesus for he shall be the savior of the world. Wow, that's quite an announcement. They have now received word finally after all these years of hope and maybe hopelessness in their minds. Now all of a sudden they get this word that, hey, hope's on the way, your Savior's coming, and here's the person that is going to bring this child into the world. Now remember that this woman in Revelation 12 is not Mary. This woman in Revelation 12 is Israel. All right, it's Israel. Mary is a part of Israel, but it's Israel that is bringing the Son of God into the world. We read in verse 5, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So this gives you the picture, uh, generally, where John said, He came, he came through this woman revealed, which was Israel, clearly, distinctly Israel, verses 1, 2, and 3. He came, and his whole program is to come to be the ruler of the world, and he's going to rule it with a rod of iron, but also he would be caught up to God and to his throne. So, so we have so much of this that has already taken place. The fact of his rulership as king is yet to come. It is not here now, but it is yet to come. And so this gives us the picture of what his occupation would be. We know many things about the, the king who was born in uh, Bethlehem. We know much about what he did. We read about it, we study about it, we preach about it, but we don't know enough about what's going to happen in the future when he reigns, when he, when he rules the world. And the world will obey him. It'll be a rule of peace, but it will be a rule of strength because he's going to do away with sin, sinful activity and sinful behavior, and the world will be in cooperation with him. Now, what I want you to do is just, just follow me as I read a few scriptures that point to us how this is Israel and how she was expecting. Isaiah 54, verses 3 through 5, For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. Now, just, just want you to think in terms of what God is reassuring the Israel about through the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is a long time after the promise to Abraham when through the prophet Isaiah, God says to them that you are not going to be ashamed. That is, you're not going to be confounded. You're not going to be embarrassed. You're not going to, you're not going to lose your position. It's just not going to happen. He said, even because of the shame of your youth, and they had enough of that, I'll tell you that much, but thou shalt remember the approach of thy widowhood no, anymore. Verse 5, for thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of the hosts is the Lord of hosts is his name, 
and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. So God is on Israel's side. Let me say to all of us here tonight, let me say to the whole world that hears, if anybody happens to be listening, if God's on Israel's side, guess whose side I want to be on? I'm going to be on, I'm going to be on the side that God favors. That just, that's it. That's where I, that's the side I choose. Now, in Isaiah 66, verse 7, before she travailed, she brought forth, before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. So who was going to be delivered of the man-child? Israel. And that's what Revelation 12 tells us. Micah 4, verse 10, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail, for now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Micah 5, portion that we know very well. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, the eternality of Christ. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. So we have the Old Testament setting where it tells us that Israel would bear a child. That's what Revelation 12 is telling us. Israel would bear a child. So when you do your studies or you teach from Revelation or you write anything about Revelation, remember this. To interpret Revelation as anything else but Israel bringing the Son of God into the world is a misinterpretation of things. This is what happened. Israel brought forth the Son of God. Through Israel, God would bring forth his Son. That's what Revelation 12 tells us. That's what John saw when he was on the Isle of Patmos. And that's what John wrote down. And it is a revealed truth. It's not so difficult. It's just a matter of believing it. Now, if you're pro-Palestine, you'll read anything into this. If, on the other hand, if you believe in the God who promised his unconditional promise to Israel, then you believe what we have here in Revelation 12. Well, we have the infamous red dragon. We see it in chapter 12 and verse number 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. So this is an intriguing creature. Uh, Revelation kind of has these monsters. The book of Daniel has these monsters. So what you have is you have God showing to these prophets Something that is exceptional, not an ordinary outcome of human behavior, but exceptionalism is what we have in the presentation of these various creatures that are presented in these scriptures. So you'll notice the interesting thing about this dragon, and I'll try to explain it to you a little bit, but you do notice that he has seven heads, and I want to explain to you what those seven heads and the ten horns, I won't have any time tonight to go into that, and the seven crowns that connect with the seven heads upon his head. Uh, so we have, first of all, we have the nature of this dragon. He is colored red. 
Now, when the woman of Revelation chapter 17 is presented, she is called the scarlet. She's on a scarlet beast. She's a scarlet woman, which shows the exceptional sinfulness and depravity that will be revealed at the time when this feature is unveiled in the time of the tribulation. And so when this dragon is shown to us to be a red, and this is maybe where people get the idea that the devil has a red suit and a pitchfork. It's really not a bad description, it's just not a biblical one. But this dragon here certainly is a picture of the devil. And he is red, but he has seven heads. So this is a interesting, interesting creature. The idea of being painted red carries with it the idea of being vicious and being evil. If we're doing any kind of a study on the devil tonight, I want you to know this. He is no friend to anybody. He is the very root of hate. He is the very root of deceit. He's the very root of lies. He's the very root of destruction. He's the very root of everything contrary to God. So there is absolutely not one good thing to be said about the devil. Not even one. I'm trying to think of what there is. There is this thing that the devil believes there is a God and he trembles. That's about as close as you can get for anything positive. And I say that to all of our wonderful atheist friends that like to listen to us and criticize what we say, but at least they're smart enough to believe in God. Our atheist friends are not. There's a real problem there. But, but he does. He believes in God. But he's afraid of God. So, but anyway, here he is. Now, what, what I want you to see, and I want you to get this into your mind, is as soon as the devil sees that this woman who is Israel, who's bearing the son, Jesus Christ, the devil says, I better put a stop to this while I can. Okay, let's not wait too long. Let's put a stop to it now. That's what we have unfolding before us here. I want you to think of his dominion. We have the seven heads and the seven crowns. Now, those of you who study world history and sociology and various subjects of that nature in high school and maybe in college, you know that there are tons of world empires, tons of them. And it's an intriguing study to know what the world empires were like. But there are some biblical empires that are also world empires, but they are presented to us in the Bible. And the reason that God didn't show every empire is because not every empire had a significance to Israel nor to God. But there are some that had a great significance to Israel God, and therefore he shows us what these empires were about. So first of all, the very first head that you think about is Egypt. Egypt had its empire rule from 31 B.C. to the emperors in 395 A.D. or thereabouts. Dates are always subject to authors. Uh, you have Assyria. 884 B.C. to 612 B.C. It's, it's interesting that while there is Egypt, there is really no Assyria today. Now, there are some Bible students who do believe that Assyria will come back to life, but for Assyria to come back to life, she has to occupy all of Syria, and she has to occupy northern Iraq. So whether that'll ever happen or not. I mean, anything can happen, but I don't know if that's what's going to happen. But Assyria as an empire was there, and it was a major world empire. Much of old ancient history surrounds Egypt and surrounds Assyria. 
Then you have Babylon. Well, we're more acquainted with that because once you come to the, to the Babylonian Empire, this is where you have tons of scripture of significance. This is where you have the book of Daniel, and this is where you have the book of Nehemiah, this is where you have the book of Ezra, and you've got so many of the biblical books that have to do with Babylon, with Medo-Persia, but Babylon had its existence as a world supreme power, 612 to about 539 BC. That was followed by the Medes and the Persians. Many of you already remember this because I preach on that a fair bit. But, but I do want us to realize the seven empires are there. We usually don't talk about the first two because they're so ancient, but we have the four that are so very current in, in our understanding of things. We have the Medo-Persians that took over from the Babylonians. Then we have the Grecian Empire. That, by the way, ruled from 808 to 168, but they didn't come to power until they subjugated the Medes and the Persians. So, if you want to see Iran become under the power of some organization, then the country of Greek did that in the historical times. Then in 200 BC to about 565 AD, therefore you have the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is described in the book of Daniel as being the most vicious and ferocious empire of them all. So much history about the Roman Empire. You read so much about that in old books and and uh, and stuff but but it was during the time of the Roman Empire where all of this about the woman giving birth to the child would take place well the Roman Empire came to an end sort of they divided up into two the east and the west the east became the orthodox type of people the West became the Roman Catholic type of thing. So you've got a real division there, but they're very much the same. So when you say the Eastern Orthodox and the Western, the Roman Catholic are the same, they're not exactly the same. In fact, the Eastern are far more idolatrous, far more iconic than what the Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholics are pretty strong on that. The Bible answers man, I don't know why a person would call himself that, but the Bible answers, man, that a lot of people followed and thought, boy, what a genius mind, what a tremendous, what a tremendous scholar. Found out that in the, within the last year, he went over and he joined the Eastern Orthodox and he even got that, their form of Christianization put upon him. And he is now a, a, an Orthodox from, from the uh, Eastern Empire. He is, he's a part of that. At one time, considered the Bible answers, man, and so, let, let me say this, so many people rejected what I teach and what people like me teach because of Hank Hanegraaff. Because because he upset the apple cart about everything we say, tested everything we say, and constantly was fussing against Israel, fussing against the church and the distinction, and fussing against how it all unfolds, and he was essentially a person that just mixed everything up in this reference, did not have a comprehension of the church and Israel. If you don't have a comprehension about the church and Israel, you could very easily do what Hank Hanegraaff did, because you don't have a basis to stand on. So he, of course, he went that way. Now, that's six. What about the seventh? The seventh will be the Roman Empire. What Roman Empire? The Roman Empire that is to be. Because if you read about the statue in the book of Daniel, 
You see that the empires come down, but you see the two legs. That's the division of the east and the west. You have the ten kings. That's the toes, the feet mixed with iron and clay will one day begin to function. And you're going to have what classical scholars, not contemporary scholars, but what classical scholars call the revived Roman Empire. I'm going to say to you again tonight, just as a little bit of a teaser, that the Antichrist cannot be a Muslim. The Antichrist will be somebody who will come out of the Second Roman Empire. I only call it Second Roman Empire. It's not in theology books. I only call it that because it's the revived. It's the extension. But that's the seventh kingdom. Now, if you recall, when I started this diatribe about the seven kingdoms, I said that's his dominion. Whose dominion? The red dragon's dominion. That is the dominion of Satan. He has held sway over all of these empires. It's interesting that the book of Daniel reveals to us that in the book of Daniel there is a demon who controls Iran, Persia. So are there demons that control other empires? All seven of them. We're not told that specifically, but you can just figure that out just from the normal turn of events. If there's a demon for Iran, there will be a demon for the Roman Empire. There will be a demon over the empires because they're going to do everything they can to control these empires. And by the way, how many of these empires are anti-Israel? How many of them hate Israel? It's quite universal. You listen to the decisions of the United Nations and the United Security Councils and all of these people, you have so much anti-Israel sentiment there. They would wipe them out. If it wasn't for America, they would wipe them out. Israel can be very, very thankful that they have the U.S. on their side. That's the only true defender they have. They have others that are allies, but the real true offender that's got clout and has got strength is the USA. We are pro-Israel, but what are we going to do? We're going to go and pat the Palestinians and say, be nice to them. But we will stand with the USA on that, and I'm glad we will. These are the seven heads, the seven crowns that he has dominion over. And this gives you, but that gives you the picture of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Medo Greece, the Roman Empire, and the revived Roman Empire. This idea about the revived Roman Empire is not dead, folks. There's a lull there between so many scholars of today who don't understand Israel and the church and all of that, and they have so decried this revived Roman Empire. A lot of people are scared to talk about it, but I just want you to realize that that empire will come back to life and it will do what it will do according to the seven heads that we see on the dragon in Re Revelation chapter 12. The dragon's destructive purpose we see in verse 4 and in verse 7. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child. When? As soon as it was born. Think about that. Just keep that in mind. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. We see that his purpose in verse 4 was first to upset the angel's habitat. In verse 4, we see that the third part of the stars are drawn. It's typically understood to mean that when he 
fell, that he took a third part of the angels with him that decided they'd go along with Lucifer. Bad decision, but they did. The plan to destroy Jesus at birth for to destroy her child as soon as it was born. What have we got? We got Herod's evil purpose. He was not a good man. When you have found him, bring me word again so that I might come and worship him also, he said in Matthew chapter 2. There was only one purpose that Herod did, was he was not going to have anybody that was designated a king to live. He was not going to have anybody running competition against his reign in his place. And so that was his purpose. I want to kill this king. That's what I want to do. Well, think of this. When these men didn't come back to give Herod the information, he gave an edict to his soldiers and he said, okay, I understand that these guys went over to Bethlehem. That's where the light took them and they stopped over there and I understand that there was this baby born over there that is called the king of the Jews, so I know that. So here's the answer to that. Kill every boy from age two and under in the, probably in the Bethlehem region. Who knows how far it went? We're not told that. We're not significant enough of the historians to record that, by the way. But he killed. Why did he kill these baby boys in Bethlehem? Why were the women of Ramah crying and not having any comfort, as the Old Testament says? He wanted to destroy them with the hope that if he could destroy the hundreds or thousands of little boys, how many there were, if he that Jesus would be included in that so that we would rid any competition. So first of all, the devil is waiting for the birth of the child so he can be destroyed, and he used people like Herod. Then I want you to know that the devil also motivated the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus. Throughout his public ministry, and we've been studying it a lot in the Gospels, especially now in the Gospel of John, what we find is hatred towards Jesus, hatred towards what he said, hatred towards his teaching and towards his purpose. It was the incitement of this red dragon that just moved upon the hearts of these Jewish leaders because from the very beginning of his earthly ministry, this group sought to kill him, 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 and until finally they were able to deliver him to the hands of the Romans to where they could finally kill him. You see, the purpose of Satan was to kill the Son of God, but he wanted to do it from the very outset of his birth. Wanted to kill him. That was the purpose of this red dragon. His hope of destroying Israel. We find that in verse 6, verse 13 through 17, and we'll not read these verses right now. I may not have time tonight to read them. But I want you to think of the intrepid attack against Israel, briefly explained. And so I will explain to you from verse 9. Satan will be cast out of the heavenly atmosphere in verse number 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. This, we know what happened when he fell, but he has access into the heavenly. Somehow he has access to communicate with God the Father and he gets permission to do certain things and He's held back from doing other things. But in Revelation chapter 12, we see that he is cast out and he is cast down upon the earth. I have a verse on that here in just a moment. You look at verse 12, by the way, we see how angry he is and we read that. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Because 
the atmosphere, the heavenly place, is washed clean from all satanic influences. No more do the principalities and powers have to contend with the evil demons that the devil has to fight up there against the righteousness of God. It is still going on tonight, but it will come to an end when Revelation 12 unfolds, somewhere in the middle of the tribulation period. But in any case, the heavens and the atmosphere are cleared of all that vice and wickedness. But he said in the second part of the verse, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. Why? For the devil has come down onto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. So about midpoint of the tribulation. Now the tribulation is tribulation all the way through, but about midpoint or so, not given the specific time here, but midpoint or so, the devil comes down just as angry as a dragon can be, and he is stomping all over this world with the intent of obliterating and wiping out everything, but primarily the nation of Israel. That's where Iran could say, Hey, we got this dragon on our side. They're going to push Israel over into the Mediterranean Sea. That's not a great partnership to have, by the way. But it's a partnership that they do have. He targets Israel particularly, if you notice in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast onto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Who is the woman? The woman is Israel. So when he comes, he's cast out from the heavenlies. He comes down. His one purpose is the destruction of Israel. This is not now. This is not history. This is not past. This is yet to come. This is still future. If there is no Israel, how in the world could this ever happen? If there's no Israel, this is all a fairy tale. But the fact is that there is an Israel, there will be an Israel, and Israel will become that target of Satan and the devil like no other nation on earth. Israel is protected, just as she was in the wilderness, but in this case it's for three and one half years, not for 40 years. We read, and the earth helped the woman, Interesting how God's creation will actually be of assistance to her. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandment of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Everything about this dragon is to destroy Israel. Now, I would not say that Satan is a replacement theologian. He hates the church just as much as he hates Israel, so he hates everything righteous. It's not that he's pro-church, anti-Israel. Uh, pro-church, anti-Israel is a theological concept in evangelical minds and even in the Roman Catholic minds. But, but the truth is that he's against everything right, but primarily against Israel. Why? Because Israel is God's program. Israel is God's program and will not come to an end until God is finished at the end of all time. And we don't have time to really go into that. So Israel's victory in the tribulation. I'm going to have to stop with this verse. 
but Israel's victory in, in the tribulation is this. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. So we see that they overcame Satan by the blood. Do you remember in Egypt when there was going to be the destruction of the firstborn child? What was the only protection that Israel had so that their children were not overcome by the death angel? Blood on the sides of the doors and on the lintel above the, at the header of the doors. If they didn't have the blood, their children would have been destroyed likewise, but the blood. That was their salvation from this horror. In the tribulation time, they will be redeemed by the blood. They will overcome by the blood, which means by that time they have tapped into what happened at Calvary. That They have come to the place where they understand that it was the blood that was so typical in the Old Testament, but the blood that was poured out at Calvary would be their redemption from the evil forces of Satan. And I want you to know this, that if you're under the blood of Christ, you are well protected. But you notice also that in the tribulation, Israel will have been born again in preparation to see the kingdom of God. I just got to tell you this because Nicodemus said, well, I see that you're from God. No one can do this except someone comes from God. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you're going to see the kingdom of God. You're going to have to be born again. Israel will not see the kingdom of God until she's born again. She has to be born again. She has to come to grips with what Calvary presented. She has to come to grips with the child that she bore to come into the world. She has to submit to that child and eventually will do so. And we notice that they will have a word of testimony. Can you imagine these Jewish people that have no time for Christianity, have no time for salvation, no time for Jesus, they hate him, they have no time for him, will one day say, but he is my Savior and he is my Lord. He died for me, he shed his blood for me, and now I have chosen Jesus Christ because he chose us. I have chosen to be one of his children. I have trusted him to be my Lord and to be my Savior. That's how they overcome the dragon. And, and if we could just apply that to all of us tonight. The blood was shed so you and I could be redeemed. The word of our testimony, I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me. That is the strength and power in this present evil world. There is an evil force out there. There's an evil Satan out there. There's an evil destroyer out there. You can be safe. You put your trust in Jesus. Israel will be attacked in a supreme way. They will be delivered by blood and by testimony. Not by warfare. By blood and by testimony. That's how they will gain the victory. Thank you for joining us today at the Revelation Podcast. We invite you to join us again next week for a new episode. If you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you're listening today, please subscribe and share with your friends. If you want to hear more messages from Dr. Neil Sawatsky or learn how you can visit a service, please check out openbible.ca.